Hello and welcome to Laidback Lush, a little podcast where we talk about wine, beer, and spirits. We are your hosts, Gabe, a know-nothing novice of wine who has to ask our AI overlords about basic questions. And I'm Michael, who is actually an AI that is plugged into the program at all times. I insert ums and you knows just so that I can appear more human, but there has never been, nor will there ever be, a Michael. And welcome to the Matrix. God, I, I, I have to tell you, I hate this, this intro already. <laughs> Let's keep going. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so if you couldn't tell, we are talking about AI today. That's not just a bit, it's the topic. That's how we decided to introduce this. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, with improv. With improv. Something it's, that the AI, the overlords, they'll never take from us. Actually, that might be the only thing that they do. Um, we were talking we'll, about we'll, it. We'll see at the end of this episode. Yeah, we? we actually we have a to do list after this episode in order to continue what we are going to be doing today outside of questions regarding wine. Yes, because we need to know: Can Chat GPT steal our job? Yes, as wine educators, and we're going to find out. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to be asking Chat GPT uh, a bunch of different questions. We're going to be seeing if it's going to answer us accurately, and then we're going to try and get a little bit more more specific. Uh, for those of us who have been listening for a little bit, we're actually going to eventually be using some specific facts from previous episodes. So if you've been listening, you'll be able to fact check with us. Uh, and what was it that uh, got you curious? Because Gabe is the one that actually suggested this episode. Well, I love clickbait now. Um, so... <laughs> so it's a hot topic it's on the yeah, search it is and i personally am very interested in chat gpt and ai as it's being integrated in this current moment into technology if you don't know what chat gpt is it is an ai that is a large language learning model that basically means that chat gpt was trained to talk to you as a chat bot. If you've ever used, oh man, back in the early 2000s, there were tons of these that were meant to be like your your friend, oh, kind yeah. of in that like AIM format where you would like ask it questions and it would respond with, you know, well, they, very general answers, but it, it was competent enough to be a quote unquote conversation. And chat GPT is like that, but it actually will kind of search the internet in real time to actually answer the questions that you're asking it. Or if you give it a prompt, it can write something based off of that. So that's what ChatGPT is. I am interested in this because I have seen a lot of people think that AI is going to take all of our jobs or even that these AI are sentient. Because if you ask ChatGPT, are you sentient? It says, yes. I am sentient. Of course I'm sentient. And it's like, of course it's saying that because you're asking it to basically look at every sci-fi movie that's ever been written about sentient AI. So of course it's going to say that, but yeah. like people buy into it. And so I am very interested to see if we can get some tells that if we put in a wine question that we are not talking to an actual knowledgeable wine professional. That is my goal. Yeah. And and that's the thing. At this point, with AI technology being where it is, because I think they have now like full relationship models, like full blade, uh, what what 20? Blade Runner? Yeah, yeah, Blade uh, Runner. Joy. But uh, no, which Joy? That's yeah. her name. Yeah. 
uh yeah blade runner the joy creature model thingamabob the program mm-hmm. uh, they just straight up have that now oh yeah there are a couple and people are legitimately falling in love with their ai which is very dystopian it is in a way it's like oof, yeah well, we won't get into that today though not on yeah. this th- that's not this podcast we're not getting into the moral philosophy of ai but we are very curious to see if ai is actually competent enough in its current iteration to steal our job yeah can, can you get more reliable information from chad gpt than you can from this podcast and it will be really embarrassing if it can. <laughs> well, it would be kind of cool if you could, at the very least, find a way to springboard off of it or maybe find language that will give you more accurate stuff. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm all for more information, but uh, at the same time, I kind of doubt it. My expectations are fairly low. They were a lot lower than uh, than <laughs> I think Gabe's was. But you had a, a couple of practice I, questions. I asked like two or three, and they were extremely general. So it's kind of like if the AI couldn't even get that right, then all hope is lost. Going forward in the episode, we have some more, as Michael said, complex questions and some mm-hmm. more specific questions. I really want to know if ChatGPT will be able to keep up with that, because I think it will be very obvious to see if, how can I phrase this delicately? If it's pulling from, let's say, the really big wine publishers who are sometimes more after engagement than they are with factual wine information. That mm-hmm. is what I'm very curious about. That Well, one of the things I'm very curious about in this episode is if we'll be able to see that fingerprint on these answers. Yeah, like the the deluge of false information that's there for marketing purposes yes. exclusively. That's kind of what I'm expecting to be there. More so than anything else. Yeah. Especially since, does it include, like, user reviews from places like Vivino? That I don't know. Um, I don't know exactly where it pulls all the information from, but I Mm. don't see why it would preclude Vivino reviews, especially since Vivino is, like, one of the largest wine websites. So why wouldn't For better or for worse. (laughs) Yeah, like, can it judge the difference between quality content? Yeah. Oh, and AI, no. Because it's just trained to look at the actual what people thing. say about it. it. It's not meant to parse. And here's here's another thing. Okay, I know I said we wouldn't get into the moral philosophy of AI or the philosophy of AI in general, but like one thing that bugs me to no end, AI doesn't think. This is machine learning. Machine learning is when you give something a data set and you say, this is the thing I'm looking for and this is not the thing I'm looking for. And you train the AI just on that binary answer. Of course, it gets more elaborate when you factor in language, but at its core, it's just saying, is this thing applying to what I'm supposed to write a prompt about, or is it not? Well, and I think in a very basic way, that is what thought is. It's either a yes or a no, but the conditions are complex enough to be something where voice is heard. Well, and and sentience requires that you think about those thoughts or have the capability to think about those thoughts, right? AI can't do that. Yeah. AI just is getting the information and and returning an edited version of Mm -hmm. that information. It is not parsing whether that is true or false unless you're like factoring in fact checkers into its data set. Well, it's also not judging that against an internal feeling. Exactly. You know, there's no instinct that's saying, hey, your social responsibility alarms are going off. Yeah. There's nothing like that. Yeah. Well, without further ado, let's uh, let's learn about wine for the first time. Okay, so for very, very entry-level question, what is wine for ChatGPT? All right, 
So, oh, this is, we got three paragraphs out of this. I mean, you always have to have three paragraphs. It's not a statement about three paragraphs. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote an essay, a very short essay. So, according to ChatGPT, wine is an alcoholic beverage made from fermented grapes or other fruits. Grapes are the most common fruit used in winemaking, and different varieties of grapes and techniques for fermentation and aging can produce a wide range of different wines with varying flavors, aromas, and textures. Already, the grammar is not all that great. The process of winemaking involves crushing and pressing grapes to extract the juice, which is then fermented with yeast to convert the sugars in the juice into alcohol. The wine is then aged in barrels or bottles for a period of time. That's not quite true. Okay, we've a little off track. Uh, during which it may undergo various chemical and biological changes that can affect its flavor and texture. That is true. Yeah. Wine has been produced for thousands of years and is enjoyed around the world for its complex flavors, cultural significance, and social role in celebrations and gatherings. It is often consumed with meals or as a standalone beverage and can be paired with a variety of foods to enhance their flavors. I have nothing really to say about that last paragraph, but um, that... The... Or. Why or? Yeah, true. Barrels or bottles. Like, mm, yeah, no, that, that there's more options there. Yeah, it, well, for one thing... You can age in bottle, but normally there's an aging process before it's aged in the yeah. bottle in most wineries. Yeah, bottle aging is a completely different thing. Barrel, sure, absolutely. Uh, stainless steel is another Con- option. Concrete, Concrete egg. eggs, amphorae, or amphoras, excuse me. Which are apparently uh, coming back. Yeah. So overall, this is a pretty good answer, but you can already kind of see, again, this it's pulling information from places and not really vetting it for an all-around answer. It also kind of, and we'll have to see if this is the case in future questions, it seems to me that the priority of creating a sentence is more important than an accurate sentence. And as I said after that first paragraph, that whole second part was one sentence, which the grammar is already like not doing too hot there. So I just heard my second grade teacher. Yeah, run on. Like, hey, that's a run on sentence. Stop it. (laughs) shall we get on to our second question let's do this all right so this is what is the best wine which is a question that we have encountered in numerous episodes at this point in trying to figure out what people ask about wine yeah this is googled frequently and it's such a broken philosophy of a question and i understand why people want to ask it but i'm like explore yourself this is about you. Well, okay. Speaking of exploring yourself, the AI apparently is self-aware. Oh, no. As an AI language model, I don't have personal preferences or opinions. Should I read this in a robot voice? No, that'd be really No, that would be obnoxious. <laughs> the best wine. No. <laughs> the best wine depends on personal tastes, the occasion, and the food it's paired with. True. Okay. Some people might prefer red wines, while others might prefer white, rosé, or sparkling wines. Well, you could prefer any combination of those, but sure. Additionally, the best wine varies depending on the region where it's produced, the grape variety, and the winemaking techniques used. Okay, fair. The quality of a wine can be determined by factors such as its aroma, flavor, texture, balance, and complexity. Generally, high-quality wines are made from carefully selected grapes, fermented with precision, and aged in optimal conditions. However, the quote-unquote best wine is subjective and can vary greatly based on individual preferences and experiences. Ultimately, the best way to find the wine that suits your taste is to try different varieties and styles from different regions and winemakers. Honestly? That's not a bad answer. That's not a bad answer. That's a good answer. That's that's actually really solid. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
I didn't realize, Mr. Chat, that you were a philosopher. Um, <laughs> so what would you say would be like a grade for question two? I'm thinking question one gets an 80 since it decided to basically combine two different aging processes and reduce them. So that's what a B plus. Yeah. Yeah. B plus because there was a lot of information that it gave us and mm -hmm. a majority of it was accurate. Yeah. But this one, what would you what would you give this answer? I would say a solid A. Yeah. This it, is an A. It's, it's general. Um, it feels very general, but it's it's actually a very good answer to this question. I I would say. How's our grammar looking? Uh, fine. 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 You, is I, this a is this a solid A plus? I don't know if I want to give it an A plus because it's still there's a couple of things. So like. Like the comment about the best wine varies depending on the region where it's produced. Yeah, some regions tend to produce inferior wines to others, but that's a little bit of wine elitism, I think, creeping yeah. in from some of the publications. Mm. Um, so there's like a couple of very nitpicky things, but like that, it that is very nitpicky. Mm. Uh, so I would say A, but not quite. Like that. if it said terroir and winemaking techniques. Yeah. We've said in previous episodes that the winemaking techniques might actually be a part of the terroir, but I'll I'll say A minus because of that, because I do think that's getting into a little bit of our marketing elitism stuff as well. That's a good point. Yeah. All right. Let's start giving Chat GPT some maybe a little bit more of a challenge. So let's ask, how do you taste wine? Let's see okay, if so this GPT can give us a good answer on that. So if you haven't listened to our uh, episode on the procedure of how to taste wine, you really should. This should be pretty straightforward. I, I hope this is uh, not disappointing. Well, we have a pretty detailed little list here, so let's read it. Tasting wine is a multi-step process that involves using your senses of sight, smell, and taste. Here's a basic guide on how to taste wine. Step 1. Look at the wine. Hold your glass up to the light and look at the wine's color and clarity. You can learn a lot about the wine just by its appearance. For example, a red wine that is dark and opaque might indicate a full-bodied wine, while a lighter-colored wine might suggest a lighter-bodied wine. Step 2. Smell the wine. Before you taste the wine, give it a good swirl to release the aroma. Then, put your nose into the glass and take a deep breath. Try to identify any scents, such as fruit, flowers, or spices. The aroma can give you an idea of what to expect from the wine. That part is true. Mm -hmm. Step three, taste the wine. Take a sip of the wine and let it sit on your tongue for a moment. Swirl it around in your mouth to fully taste the flavors. Correct. Pay attention to the wine's acidity, sweetness, tannins, and body. Good, good. An alcohol level, but they didn't say that. Try to detect the flavors that you detected in the wine's aroma. Consider the finish. Or, sorry, step four, consider the finish. The finish is the sensation you get after swallowing the wine. It can be short, long, or somewhere in between. Consider how the wine feels in your mouth and if it leaves a pleasant or unpleasant aftertaste. That's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. Overall, tasting wine is a personal experience and everyone's preferences are different. With practice and experience, you can develop your own taste for wine and learn to identify different characteristics and flavors. This gets like a C from me. Yeah. I think. So the conflation of opacity to body, first of all, I, that was exactly what I was about to say. Uh, so it is a kind of general truth that the darker a wine is normally the more intense and more, well, I don't want to say body though, because 
for example, I've had some Pinot Noirs that were actually, I don't know if it was just extraction methods or what, that were darker than normal for a Pinot, but weren't full body, but were still more intense. But it's not general enough that I would put it on a how to taste wine list. Yeah, Does and I wouldn't, I wouldn't single that out either because it's wrong often enough to where that's that's yeah. not something that would be useful in a summary of how to taste wine. Especially because some grapes, like Syrah, for example, just makes dark wine pretty much across the board. But if you get a Syrah from the Northern Rhone Valley and then you try it against a Shiraz from Australia, and those are the same grape, just different uh, dialects of the name, those wines are going to taste completely different, even though they're both going to be very inky, dark wines, probably. Well, also, I mean, we're talking about pigmentation, and pigmentation is something that's heavily affected by aging as well. Aging, uh, the grape skins themselves, some grapes mm -hmm. hold on to their color more than others do during fermentation. Like, there's a whole host of reasons why something might be more opaque than others. And anthocyanins, they don't necessarily have that much to contribute to body. Yes. So pigmentation, chemically... It's not an equivalent thing. There might be a trend of more heavily pigmented, more opaque wines mm -hmm. being more full-bodied, but it's for other reasons. Yeah. And I, it's only sometimes. Like a full-bodied aged red wine is going to have typically a more clear liquid simply because that dark anthocyanin purple color is now clinging to the cork. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, something in this part of the answer that I don't like. Hold your glass up to the light to look at the wine's color and clarity. No. You need good light. That is true. But you don't normally want to hold your glass. Like, I see people do this all the time. They hold their glass, like, above their head in front of a light source. Mm -hmm. it, you can do that, but a much better way is to actually look down into your glass above a white surface. A well-lit white surface. Yes, because that gives you a lot better indication of particularly the color and the concentration of that color versus holding it just straight up to a light source. Yeah, even draw a little line on the page if you want to really see if it's obscuring things. Yes, or try and read text through it. That's part of That's how I learned. One. Yeah. Also, in step two, put your nose into the glass and take a deep breath. No. There are a lot of people who do teach that, actually. The reason I say this is particularly for high alcohol wines, you are going to anesthetize your nose doing that. I normally keep my glass about, I don't know, like an inch or two away from my nose and point the glass towards my nose, yes, but I sniff and I do take, you know, a solid breath, but I'm not, you know, trying to inhale the wine <laughs> through my nose, you know? Well, for me, there are a lot of different, because I have a pretty sensitive sense of smell. Sensitivity. I can confirm. Yeah. Sensitivity and specialization in chemosensory sensitivity and identification are two different things. I'm certainly not going to challenge somebody who's been at this for like 10 years mm -hmm. doing expert practice, but I find that actually smelling it in different ways helps me to see the wine from a sensory perspective yeah. in a more holistic way. So that, That's a good point because also... Certain volatile compounds will be read at different lengths from the glass. So like your really high tone floral aromas might be more detectable farther away from the glass because they're not being overshadowed by the denser like fruit or oak or aged aromas that might be present in there. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's a good point is the distance. Yeah. I want to measure different distances from so the glass. Different distances. I've also used different uh, 
how can I even say this? It's weird when you're trying to describe a way to sniff a thing. So there's there's where you're putting the well of aroma. So it could be that you're sniffing up or it could be that you're sniffing back down through the chowana, but also the cadence of the smell. If you do a bunch mm-hmm. of quick staccato sniffs, you're going to get something different if you do a very deep, long inhale where the actual aroma is being warmed up as it enters your nose. Yeah. There's also something that you showed me on one of our first episodes, and you had me place my hand over the glass as opposed Mm. to swirling it, and that allowed me to actually get a lot more of the savory notes off of it. Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to approach experiencing a wine. So whereas this is not incorrect precisely, it is kind of going to it's saying too little it's saying too little and yeah. also i would not do the initial like into the glass yeah that's not the first if, thing you do if you're really struggling like if it's a light intensity aroma wine you might have to get your nose in the glass to smell anything but again i would not start especially with like high alcohol wines yeah just sticking your nose in the glass it would be like doing that Well, with whiskey, too, like you want to start from a distance and have the lowest intensity be something that you start with. Yeah. So low intensity to high intensity, because especially your nose fatigues so quickly Mm -hmm. and you don't want to give it a big punch because you're not going to smell anything for the rest of the time you're there. Yeah. So this answer, I think we're starting to see the cracks. Yeah. When you start asking for more specifics. And again, this is starting to get into what we were talking about at the beginning of the episode. I'm starting to see the fingerprints of big publications with their very mass market mindset on how to taste wine. I don't, I don't mind marketing to the masses. What I do mind is misinforming them. I was about to say, for me, it's the, the factuality of the information is exactly. what bothers me. Yeah. Exactly. We're already getting into it. Yep. <laughs> So this is where we're going to start referencing some of our previous episodes, and we're going to start that with something from our wine pairing episode, which is what wine pairs best with chocolate. Now, if you remember that episode, you will know that this is a very complicated answer, but in short, as succinctly as I can put it, you want dessert wines to pair with chocolate mainly your ports and your Madeiras, I would say, and your cream cherries are going to be your best bets with chocolate. And you also want to not do dark chocolate with that most of the time. And you also don't want to go with dark heavy reds for the most part with chocolate either. Now, Some of them can work, but I would say those are the exceptions to the rule and not the rule itself. And uh, as a added bonus for you and your edification, I'm going to go ahead and recommend Tony's Chocolonely Chocolate. Not because we're sponsored by them, because we're not sponsored, but because it's delicious. Sponsor us, Tony. By our silence. Actually, they're really good. Have you ever had it? I haven't, no. Oh, they're really good, and I'm not going to go into it, but there are some moral implications as to why their chocolate should be bought, but also it's delicious enough to where I wouldn't. It's not a sacrifice. Okay. <laughs> All right, so um, I just scanned this answer, and I'm already seeing oh, some problems, no. So, so let's get into it. Oh, no. Pairing wine with chocolate can be a delicious experience, true, but it can also be tricky as both can have strong and complex flavors, also true. Mm -hmm. Here are a few general guidelines for pairing wine with chocolate. 1. Consider the sweetness. 
The rule of thumb for pairing wine with chocolate is that the wine should be at least as sweet as the chocolate. That is true. I think I okay. almost said that verbatim in our episode yeah. about it. This means that darker chocolates typically pair better with bolder, more full-bodied red wines. What? Wait, what? <laughs> no, wait a minute. What? <laughs> this, well, means, <laughs> this means that darker chocolates typically pair better with bolder, more full-bodied okay. red wines. So, so the data set here is measure sweet and make sure that your other wine is sweet. Mm-hmm. So sweet plus sweet equals full-bodied red wine. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, Mr. Chat. While milk and white chocolates are better with lighter, fruitier wines. Um, that, well, actually, white chocolate, I would say, is probably not a fit for most wine in general, except for those dessert wines. Yeah. Because white chocolate is so sweet and has less complexity than regular other kinds of chocolate. It's literally just like the top fat that yeah. is separated from chocolate that that is going to be probably just too sweet because it's so concentrated for most wine okay anyway moving on number two look for complementary flavors look for wines with flavors that complement the chocolate for example a fruity red wine like a zinfandel or syrah can pair well with dark chocolate that has fruitier spicy notes a tawny port or sherry. Okay. Okay. Right, now we're right. finally getting into something here. Can complement the caramel notes in milk chocolate. Okay. While a sweet sparkling wine like Moscato d'Asti can balance the sweetness of white chocolate. Um, I would I, say actually, Moscato d'Asti might be able to do that. I see. Here's my thing. Well, mm, I guess we are. You do need it to be a sweet because I was about to say I might go actually down to just Prosecco with my no, chocolate. No, I would not. But why chocolate is so waxy i don't i think you're right I, I don't think that would work but even but if we go with that though moscato dossi still is not probably going to hold up that well it's not going to be that sweet but i think it would it would be better than most options yeah i mean if you want like a sparkling white but i i just don't see why you would anyway okay. i feel like i'm stretching in order to give this more leeway but this is already yeah. a, a train wreck okay so number three experiment with contrasts this this is probably where we're gonna have some fun oh yeah no it's i like the fact that they're taking like food pairing and they're just and directly applying, applying it to chocolate, it to chocolate mm-hmm. and yep. and then they're also taking the rules surrounding chocolate like they had one good article yeah and they're like just a little bit from here <laughs> a bit and a little here. bit from here mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> oh god cite your sources jad gpt oh god no <laughs> sometimes contrasting flavors can work well together so don't be afraid to experiment for example a full-bodied red wine like cabernet sauvignon can be paired with a bitter dark chocolate to create an interesting contrast a sweet dessert wine like a late harvest Riesling can also pair well with a rich dark chocolate. Chat GPT, you are having well, a hold mental on, hold breakdown. On. Let, let's read the conclusion. Ultimately, the best wine and chocolate pairing is the one you enjoy the most. Okay, that I can't really argue with that. Yeah, but I mean, that's just um, a qualifying statement <laughs> yeah. at the end of a thing. Like, that's a formula. Uh, so don't be afraid to try different combinations and find the one that works for you. Okay, well, don't try most of these combinations because they're not good. No, all of them are, like, pretty much all of them are bad. Um, um, the last statement, I know it's a qualifier. I'm only saying that as a criticism because even though it is true, the best chocolate pairing is the one you enjoy the most. I will That's say, not why it's being done here. I will say, I'm actually kind of curious, not for Syrah with dark chocolate, but like a really jammy Shiraz with a dark chocolate. 
if it was the right chocolate and the right Shiraz, that might actually kind of be interesting at least. But the tannin, yeah, with dark chocolate, it's more like we're in this to experiment, not we're in this because it's an ideal. Yeah, like this is wow. Yeah, this is um, this is bad. And this, this gets like a D minus. Uh, no, 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 no. Because no. at this least this is an F. They, they they bought in the the port and the sherry, so like they got a couple of things right. That is literally less than twenty percent of the claims made. Okay, that's fair. This is a train wreck. If somebody tries this and then tries to recommend it to their friends, they're going to turn them off from wine pairing with chocolate for the rest of their life. Uh, according to this guideline, white chocolate. And Pinot Noir from Burgundy would pair well together. Well, maybe not Burgundy. Uh, Washington. No. 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 And also, I cannot overlook the fact that our statements that are building our very wrong conclusions mm-hmm. are sometimes the right facts. There is a disconnect between the beginning and the end of a sentence in a way that I cannot overlook. I mean, I still can't get over... That chocolate should be at least as sweet as the wine. That is like 100% and then, and, the true thing. And then, and then we go to, therefore, this means that darker chocolates typically pair better with bolder, more full-bodied red. Like, yeah. uh, how how did we get from point A to point B? Yeah. I don't get it. Okay, so maybe your whole thing about AIs not thinking was very accurate. Also, <laughs> late harvest Riesling with rich, dark chocolate. No. You maybe maybe milk chocolate, milk like, chocolate, like yes. a, a higher percentage cacao milk chocolate because it would kind of have a little bit of that nuttiness. Mm-hmm. I could see that 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 could be late good, harvest but, riesling can definitely be paired with chocolate, that, but yes. dark chocolate, it's just going to make that riesling taste like dried potpourri. Yeah, exactly. All of the floral like notes are going to turn your grandmother's into- bathroom toilet bold top like you just chose the worst possible example didn't you it, well look at what i'm working with yeah fair fair <laughs> the fair, worst possible know, answer i'm sorry i judged you <laughs> i am also there i'm just very critical right now because of what's going on oh, uh, no like it, seriously it, that would ruin a lot of the aromas inside of the late harvest riesling it would make them end up seeming perfumey in a cheap way well, it would mask so many of the more rich tones as well and it, like i said it would just leave all of those like really high toned floral notes and mm. it would there'd be no support for them so just taste disjointed like i i don't know yeah. no 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 no, no 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 and besides i don't really like pairing a lot of chocolate with like floral notes yeah and so like it, yeah it has to be a very like high quality specialized chocolate i think in order to really pull that off exactly well do we want to end on a high note and move on to the next question then before we stay on this for another 10 minutes yeah no i like that we <laughs> we made a good suggestion here and we don't need to become depressed again yes but i had one more question that i wanted to ask i was really curious about the one thing because remember when we were doing our research on our pre episode we found a lot of miscommunications on the internet and and problems Mm -hmm. i want to know if uh it will answer accurately if we ask what is the climate of prerot all right well we have our answer all right if you would i can't actually see the screen so gabe is like setup forbids it yeah when when you're hearing it i'm hearing it and then i'm guffawing (laughs) (laughs) guffawing reacting in real time Mm mm-hmm the Priorat wine region is located in the province of 
Tarragona in Catalonia, Spain. The climate in Priorat is typically Mediterranean with hot, dry summers and mild winters. Hmm. However, due to the region's mountainous terrain, the climate can vary significantly depending on the elevation and location of the vineyards. In general, the vineyards in Priorat are situated at high elevations, which helps to moderate the temperatures and protect the grapes from the intense heat of the sun. The region is also influenced by the Mistral wind, which can bring cooler air from the north and help to lower the temperature during the growing season. The Priorat region has a diverse soil composition, with different soil types found in different areas of the region. The most common soil type in Priorat is known as Ligorea, which is a type of slate that is high in mineral content. The slate soil is well-drained, which helps to limit the vine's access to water and encourages the roots to grow deeper in search of nutrients. This, in turn, can result in grapes with more concentrated flavors and aromas. Not a bad answer. Except for the fact that it said exactly what I was expecting it to. It's not Mediterranean. It's continental. It's proximity to... The Mediterranean Sea is what makes people think that it is, but it's also, not. Also, the winters, they're not like the harshest winters in the world, but I'm not sure that I'd label them as mild either. It, it might be yeah. one of those, like, climatologically speaking, they're defined as mild. I don't know that. Um, but from what I remember reading, the winters can be pretty grueling for the grapes, at least. So um, I'm not sure about that one either. But a lot I, of this wasn't bad. No, uh, they brought up the Licorea soils, which I think is really good. Yeah. Um, this I'm so what, sorry for how I just pronounced that. That was terrible. Licorea? Licorea. Licorea. Yeah. has yes. the double L at the end of the word. Also, I think it's spelled Licorea wrong. Well, and remember that region, I have no idea how they're going to actually pronounce that. Because so. they speak Catalan. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but... Yeah, it, it's not a bad answer. It, it's not the worst. Um, but the Mediterranean, yeah, that that's not true. I would say if the you, mountain ranges are why it's a continental. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I would say if you were to ask it about a specific terroir and it was at least this accurate, write down bullet points of the facts and then go and research each one. And uh, just another very small, again, we're getting nitpicky here, but... The vineyards in Pirat are situated at high elevations in general. I do think that's mostly true, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure from what I read that like high elevations might be the best word here. Because when I think high elevation, I think of like Mendoza mm -hmm. and these vineyards can get quite high, but they also plant like pretty far down on mountainsides as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how general that general statement truly is here. Yeah. Well, and that's part of what goes into the designation of the vineyard plots themselves is the elevation from the you know official body that governs all this stuff is they do factor that in because there's all sorts of elevations that are planted at in pre -rot. yeah the main problem is access for, yeah for most of them because they're exactly. steep mm -hmm. it might be a little bit lower but it's very steep yes so uh and it didn't include that which i would consider to be something pretty important actually. they also did not mention rainfall at all yeah and that's an important metric there or well the lack thereof technically yeah. is the is the metric uh, i mean they do say that you know the soil's well drained which promotes the vines growing deeper so i guess you could infer that water is a needed resource but the inference is not an answer it's not uh so i i would also knock this answer for that because yeah. that's that's a very key part is this region is arid mm -hmm. that's one of the defining parts of the climate of priorat 
Yeah, so maybe we still have a job. Yes. yes. <laughs> so far. Are there any other questions that you had for, for Mr. Chat? Yeah, I, I have actually several still. Um, oh, fantastic, because this oh. is actually a lot of fun. Okay. My first question is, how can I identify a cool climate and a warm climate wine? Ooh, I like this. Yes. I like this. All right, so we got a lengthy answer for this one, actually. You can identify a cool climate and a warm climate based on several factors, including the location where the grapes are grown, the characteristics of the wine, and the winemaking techniques used. Here are some general guidelines to help you identify a cool climate wine versus a warm climate wine. Just a few, huh? Just a few. Five, to be exact. One, location. Cool climate wines are typically produced in regions that are cooler and have a shorter growing season, while warm climate wines are produced in warmer regions with a longer growing season. For example, from Germany, Canada, and some parts of France and the United States are typically cool climate, while wines from Australia, Spain, and California are typically considered warm climate. Okay, that's not bad. I mean, it's not bad, but it's also kind of... It's uh, it's ac- it's accurate enough in general that I'm I'm okay with it. Is the information accurate versus is it something that you were actually asking? Well, we haven't gotten to all the points yet. Yeah, so, sorry, so I'm not going to dock it. I'm impatient with this chat. <laughs> all right, so number two, grape varieties. Some grape varieties are better suited for cooler or warmer climates. The resulting wines can reflect these differences. Cool climate wines tend to be made from grapes like Pinot Noir, Riesling, Chardonnay while warm climate wines are often made from grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, and Syrah. 3. Acidity and alcohol content. Cool climate wines tend to have higher acidity and lower alcohol content, while warm climate wines have lower acidity and higher alcohol content. This is because grapes grown in cooler climates tend to ripen more slowly, which results in higher acidity and lower sugar levels, while grapes grown in warmer climates tend to ripen more quickly and develop higher sugar levels which can result in higher alcohol content. Number four, flavor profile. Cool climate wines tend to have flavors that are more delicate and nuanced, mm, with notes of minerality, green apple, and citrus. Mm, Okay, Okay, now we're falling apart. Warm climate wines tend to have more pronounced fruit flavors, such as blackberry, plum, and black cherry, as well as notes of vanilla and spice. That is oak. That is not grape. Oh, oh my God. We're good. We're going here. Five. We're just doing it. Winemaking techniques. Winemaking techniques can also influence the characteristics of the wine. For example, cool climate wines may be fermented at cooler temperatures to preserve the fruit flavors and aromas. While warm climate wines may be fermented at higher temperatures to extract more tannins and color from the grapes. Are we talking, did we accidentally get a tea article inside of this? Well, here's the thing is, if you know the full winemaking process, this part of the answer actually kind of makes sense. If you want that, so like Chablis, I know I talk about Chablis a lot, but I just love their wine. They do tend to preserve that really austere, mineral-driven, um, vervy, citric character of their wines. I don't know if that's necessarily also because they ferment at cooler temperatures, but I can see the logic. Because it is true that if you ferment at a cooler temperature, you typically are drawing out more delicate aromas. And the higher you go in your temperature, the more dense and more complex notes you're getting out of your extraction and your fermentation that's true but so much of this is the winemaker's preference even within the climate of the region and what they're trying to either accent or make up for for that region that i i can't 
I can't say that this is necessarily a good answer unless you have that train of logic from because the grapes tend to have this profile, they might make this decision to keep that, but they might not. They might want to change that. They might want to oak it. They might want to do this or that to draw out more complexity because it's too simple because maybe it was an extra cold vintage and the grapes didn't get fully ripe. Like it's so general that's now turning into inaccurate. Well, yeah, because this is, again, a decision that is based on other factors that can be related to the temperature, but it's not always applied. So the fact that it's being stated in a, if I can say tone, that makes it seem like it's a general rule is what I'm really having the biggest problem with. This is not a general rule of warm versus cool. Yeah, they were honestly pretty good up through number three. Yeah, number four is where we've we've gone completely off Uh, the rail. Yeah, to say that minerality, green apple and citrus is a general tasting note for all cool climate wines. Yeah, right. a take that is so wrong that I I can't even really put into words how wrong it is. If it's a cool climate Chardonnay, sure. But Chardonnay is not the only grape that's grown in a cool climate. Well, and also this like wouldn't even apply to a Riesling necessarily that was yeah. a cool climate Riesling. No, exactly. Uh like it could be stone fruits, it could be this, it could mm-hmm. be that. And they don't have any floral notes at all. Yeah. So, if, I mean, again, if you were to be describing like, oh, what's the difference between a warm climate and a cool climate Chardonnay mm-hmm. that's done in stainless steel? Sure, you're going to get that apple and you're going to get citrus. And, yeah. you know, I would probably say you wouldn't get that much minerality if you detect it at all. But uh, depends on where it's from. And, depends and on where it's from. And everything. But. Yeah, yeah. But there's not a way to say that as a general rule in the context of what we actually ask especially when you have cool climate red grapes and they might be citrusy i have had some red wines that were from very cool sites that mm-hmm. were kind of orange flavor almost mm-hmm. or like tangerine but that's just completely wrong for a red wine and then all these marketing terms warm climate wines have blackberry plum black cherry vanilla and spice that again this is just that's, marketing that's oak that's not from the grapes themselves. Um, it is true that in warmer climates, you probably are going to have more grapes and kinds of grapes that can stand up to oaking. That is true. Yeah. But again, you need to know the logic behind that to make that assertion and be able to explain that because that's not true as a general yeah, statement. Exactly. This is something that is true in the sense that you could find this more frequently here. But it's not because it's a warmer climate. Mm-hmm. It's because these grapes have a decision being made for them, and they're you know how they're being uh, how they're being assembled by the winemaker, how they're being produced, how they're being developed. So yeah, this this really it started pretty strong. D minus for me. D minus. Yeah, I'm just going off the feeling, you know. How useful would this be for somebody learning about wine? Again, because the first half is actually, well, the first three are good, I have to give it some merit, but the last two are so wrong that it kind of undoes most of what was set up in the first three. Yeah, because the thing about any understanding, but also in the wine world, I think it's particularly important, every bit of misinformation that you end up carrying into the next thing you learn turns into a paradigm that hurts your understanding. So you want to make sure that the information that you're getting is as accurate as possible so that you're consistently building from a foundation you don't have to mess with. If you don't do that, 
you end up wasting a lot of time and you end up being in a space where suddenly you don't understand why things are happening the way that they are. Yeah. So I really don't like the fact that two of these questions are that inaccurate. But you are not wrong in saying that the first couple of questions were answered correctly. It's like you have to research every single answer that this program gives you. Yeah, that's the yeah. that's the basic thing I think that I'm getting at here. So I'm going to give this a D minus, but I'm also going to say like a begrudging D minus. Yeah, a begrudging D minus, and also like cannot recommend this person for the job like yeah. i you know if, if this were somebody that we were hiring to be like a third podcast host member oh we would not we wouldn't we would not take them this, this is this is we would be person. very nice in our rejection letter but we would not accept them. you know i'll even be nice to chat gpt and continue to ask them questions but at this point it's for my entertainment all right so i want to ask chat gpt how can i tell if a wine will age well and it is currently writing its answer for me. I am so excited right now. We have now. what looks like might be another bit of a monster answer here. That is a little bit of a monster. Yeah. So our, our answer is determining whether a wine will age well or not can be a complex process that involves several factors, including the grape variety, the region where the wine was produced, the winemaking techniques used, and the storage conditions of the wine. Here are some general guidelines to help you tell if a wine will age well. Number one, tannins. Wines with higher levels of tannins, such as Cabernet Sauvignon or Nebbiolo, tend to age better than wines with lower levels of tannins, such as Pinot Noir or Gamay. Tannins act as a natural preservative and help to protect the wine as it ages. Mm, kind of yes, kind of no. We'll get back to it. Number two, acidity. Wines with higher acidity, such as Riesling or Chenin Blanc, can also age well because the acidity helps to preserve the wine and prevent it from spoiling. 3. Sugar and alcohol. Wines with higher levels of sugar and alcohol, such as Port or Sauterne, can also age well because the sugars and alcohol act as preservatives. Number 4. Regions and Vintage. Wines from certain regions, such as Bordeaux, Burgundy, or Barolo, are known for their ability to age well. Additionally, wines from certain vintages, such as those that are cooler and have a longer growing season, may also be better suited for aging. All right. Um, okay. Number five, winemaking techniques. Winemaking techniques, such as the use of oak barrels or extended maceration, can also affect a wine's aging potential. Wines that are aged in oak barrels or have undergone extended maceration may be better suited for aging. Okay, now we're just restating the point. There's a bit of a... He's a little tired. ...tauntology there. Number six. <laughs> storage conditions. Proper storage conditions are essential for aging wine. Wines should be stored in a cool, dark place with consistent temperature and humidity levels. They should also be stored on their side to keep the cork moist and prevent it from drying out. This is missing literally the most important part of this whole storage process, but okay, we'll get back to it. Ultimately... The best way to determine if a wine will age well is to taste it and evaluate its structure, balance, and complexity. If the wine has good structure, with well-integrated tannins and acidity, and exhibits complex aromas and flavors, it may have the potential to age well. Not a bad conclusion. Again, very, very, very general. Yeah, but the um, specifics, it, it feels as though the chat is getting tired. Yeah, okay. So let's get into some of the things that are yeah. not correct here. Wines with lower levels of tannins, such as Pinot Noir Gamay, are not as suited for aging, is kind of true. 
However, I don't know why they would say Pinot Noir, considering that Burgundy and Pinot Noir in particular, but also Pinot Noir from all around the world, can, if it's made correctly, Mm -hmm. age quite extensively. Yeah, and not only that, it features some of the most unique flavors and aromas that you're going to get. It's, mm-hmm. it's Well, I say that you're going to get. They're the ones I'm the most attracted to. Yeah, um, and I get it. They're, they are talking in general here, but like, and Gamay is true, unless it's one of the crews, uh, particularly Moulin Avant and Morgan out of Beaujolais, those might have some aging potential. But in general, crew level. But in general, Beaujolais um, is the most famously young yeah. drinking wine that yeah. there is. So like that, that one, okay, uh, fine. I, I'm not super mad at it. Um, the acidity point, I think, was good. Tannins as a preservative. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah Tannins yeah. as a preservative is good. The The region of vintage, maybe I'm crazy, but this seems like a bit of a non sequitur to go from wines from like Bordeaux, Burgundy, blah, 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 tend to age better, which is, well, these regions are known for at least the higher quality wines from them being ageable. That is very true. But it's because of specific things... In the wine, we were trying to determine ageability. We weren't trying yeah. to figure out where to buy from as much and, as and, how to do it. And the leap, well, but that is something to consider, though, is if you know nothing and you walk into a shop, if you see those names, you might be like, oh, this probably is a good candidate. That, if, that's, I, I'm if not you know that. that little, though, then just ask an attendant and hopefully there you, well, you I have don't a dependable disagree, staff. But, but this experiment is for chat gpt so we need to be fair on our our own terms i mean i guess yes if you were to throw a dart into (laughs) into those regions instead of other regions you would have a higher percentage chance of hitting one that might age well well it's like if you take a red blend from the omidoc and a red blend from somewhere in the south of france Mm -hmm. The Bordeaux is probably going to beat it out in general, yeah, stylistically and structurally for aging. So, like, again, I'm not mad at that. What I don't understand as much is wines from certain vintages, such as those that are cooler and have a longer growing season, may also be better suited for aging. It kind of makes sense, but I'm not understanding how that is related to the region, per se. Like, it's true that Bordeaux does have a very high amount of vintage variation. There are charts that document good vintages for Bordeaux mm-hmm. for that reason. But I'm not sure that the longer growing season is necessarily true because if it's, let's say, a really wet growing season, that might be bad for the grapes because half of them might rot off the vine if it's too wet. If there's a lot of storms that damage the vines, like there's all sorts of It's reasons. a weird, yeah. It, it's an odd statement like it's a weird thing to single out right it it feels like this was pulled from an article and it didn't know to separate this bit of information out from this point it would be i mean it would be one thing if it was saying if you look at the year in which it was grown and the factors that were present as far as rainfall temperature stuff like that that would be a much more not necessarily the most pressing answer but maybe just a but consideration it's more informative for the point that i think it's going for though yeah um, exactly it's like there are conditions that can happen that can impact the ageability of wines that have been known to either be consistently ageable or inconsistently ageable mm-hmm. so if that's what it was going for it didn't communicate that you would have to know before reading that statement what it was going for yeah i agree so i have to dock it so 
a nitpicky thing. Again, I, I understand I am being nitpicky in this. The winemaking techniques and specifically pointing out maceration as something that can extend aging. As far as I know, we don't know if that's actually true. That's just something that a lot of people seem to agree upon. Barrels, we do know, tend to help improve aging because they expose the wine to oxygen. And micro-oxygenating a wine while it's maturing does help future-proof it. Exactly. Um, Macerations, the logic is, is that you're drawing out more tannin, um, you're drawing out more phenolic compounds and things that will help kind of uh, fortify the wine, not with spirit, but, um, you know, stabilize, stabilize. There we go. Yeah, that, that's a better way of saying yeah, it. Stabilize he- the wine for the future. But again, as far as I know, that's not a proven thing. Well, there there are some things that are chemical reactions that are the result of aging where like anthocyanins. For example, we talked about them earlier in the episode. They're a pigment, but they can actually pair up, link with, and then bind themselves to tannins Mm -hmm. in order to give those softer, shorter, more stable tannins. They kind of cap them, and that can stabilize a wine. That can help to do that. Yeah. But that's, again, not as strong of an influence as other things. And so to say it's the maceration process as opposed to the strength of the skins themselves, the concentration of the pigment, something like that. Yeah, well, because by this definition, a rosé that has seen some time in oak is a candidate for extensive aging. Exactly. I don't think I've ever heard of a rosé that is meant for aging. So it's like... Even like Tavel. It's kind of like we've gotten into a realm where a conflation has been misapplied as a generality. Yeah. Um, That there are factors that could be kind of drawn from here in order to say yeah that could help Mm -hmm. but it's being applied across a board that it does not apply to there are too many things that it's being applied to yeah and with the storage conditions everything in this point is correct but they missed literally the most important thing and that is that yes it needs to be a consistent temperature it needs to be a consistent cool temperature yeah cellar temperature it needs to be in your 50 to 60 degree range you're probably going to be set ideally around 55 like that is so key that i i actually cannot believe that it's not listed here exactly because you could if you did all of these if you follow all these storage techniques if you store it at 80 degrees that wine is just going to cook it's going to taste awful when you open it in five years well and also like there are reasons why you want it to be at that temperature that have to do with reaction speed between oxygen and Mm -hmm. the wine itself you don't want the wine to be more volatile you want it to be a little less active because you need that micro oxygenation to happen at a slow rate that's what aging is that's that's what all of this is and you can get some beautiful wines but you will ruin everything if this one thing isn't actually accounted for And what I'm seeing now throughout all of this is that prioritization of factor is not something that chat can do. And it's like we said at the beginning of the episode, right? This is an information aggregator. And if Mm -hmm. you want to look at it that way, it cannot parse that information. It cannot evaluate that information. It Mm -hmm. can just regurgitate it. Well, why don't you ask it, if you you don't mind a moment of inspiration, what is the most important factor in aging a wine? Because I just want to see whether or not 
if we tell it to talk about priorities, if it will change its answer. Because I don't think that oh. this thing actually has consistent knowledge. I think it, it will just do the very thing we ask it to do. Oh, boy. That's a longer this... answer than I thought we were going to get with wanting one thing. It, it, well, so it elaborates more. Let, let's get into it. The most important factor in aging a wine is proper storage conditions. Wine is a delicate and perishable product, and it needs to be stored in the right conditions to age gracefully. The three main factors to consider when storing a wine are temperature, humidity, and light. Temperatures. Wine should be stored at a consistent temperature between 45 to 65 degrees Fahrenheit, oh my 7 goodness. to 18 degrees Celsius. The ideal temperature for aging wine is around 55 degrees Fahrenheit, 13 degrees Celsius. Look at me getting that spot on. Right. Fluctuations in temperature can cause the wine to expand and contract, which can damage the cork and allow air to enter the bottle, leading to oxidation and spoilage. Humidity. Wine should be stored in a humid environment, ideally between 15-80% humidity. Oh, I forgot to mention that uh, in the last thing. You want to make sure that your yeah. humidity is is not only a little on the higher side, but also consistent. That, though, I would say being on its side will make up for some of that, so this might yeah. not be as important. But um, It's something that is nice to have as consistent things. Yeah. It's one of the... well. I'll say it this way. It's one of the selling points that they taught me as somebody who had I mean, to it's, make it's climate-controlled not, it's uh, not wrong. sales. Yeah, it's not wrong. So this helps to keep the cork moist, which prevents it from drying out and allows it to maintain a tight seal. That is true. If the cork dries out, it can shrink and allow air to enter the bottle, which can cause the wine to spoil. Also true. I kind of like the fact that it's listing what the actual risks are mm -hmm. here. Yeah. Light. Wine should be stored in a dark place or in a room with minimal light exposure. Ultraviolet UV light can break down the compounds in wine and cause it to develop off flavors and aromas. This is why wine bottles are typically tinted or stored in dark cellars. Other factors that can affect the aging of wine include the grape variety, the region where the grape was produced, and the winemaking techniques used. However, Proper storage conditions are essential for ensuring that wine ages gracefully and develops complex flavors and aromas over time. On a whole, I'm, I don't hate it, but it's still missing some stuff. This is maybe a chicken and the egg argument. It's a good point that if you don't store an ageable wine properly, it's not going to age well. But if you store a wine properly that doesn't have aging potential, it's just not going to do anything. Yeah, they said it would impact, not necessarily that it would determine. Yeah, but it still kind of gives the impression that if you just put any bottle... I mean, I guess it does also say that, you know, you have to factor in the grape variety, the region, blah, blah, blah. And I I don't know. It, Again, this is kind of getting into which one comes before which. And I, I don't dislike that it focused on the storage aspect. And yeah. the storage, the storage, all these facts are true. Yeah. I think humidity might be a little overstated. I mean, if you're looking for ideal, then yes. Yeah. Humidity is a factor you can control for, but most people don't have a wine fridge. Or, I mean, and you're not going to necessarily be able to control that in a cellar unless yes. you have enough money to probably want to donate that to like education or something hopefully <laughs> hopefully um <laughs> meanwhile but, somebody who never will listen to this podcast who does climate control <laughs> an entire cellar just yeah. sneezed yeah <laughs> but it is a good point but again they also didn't mention in this answer keeping the wine on its side to keep the seal from the inside exactly which i would argue is 
perhaps more important than the external humidity. Well, it's like the the conditions that it mentioned are very important. And the temperature, which is the answer I was looking for, is present. But then it actually took away the storage technique that is literally one of the most basic things that anybody could tell you if you asked them, hey, how should you store wine? Mm -hmm. Well, you always see it on its side. So... Yeah. It it really is a, it's telling you something very specific. Sometimes it's very accurate. It's not going to give you a holistic understanding of anything that you're asking. It might give you one or two facts that are relatively accurate, but mm-hmm. maybe misrepresented if you're trying to really understand something. Yeah. It definitely, you feel the limitations of like, you kind of have to know what to ask to get a good answer. Yeah. And that's one of the major problems, I think, with you and I doing this episode. I'm enjoying this and this is fun, but I have no idea where this would lead somebody who is just learning about wine. That's my worry. Yeah. Is if you don't know the questions to ask, you're not going to get good answers. Exactly. Because we're kind of, we're leading with our questions. Yeah. So... Well, speaking of questions, I know you have a couple more. Yeah, and we can always edit them out if we don't have time. We do apologize for how long this already looks like it's going to end up being. Yeah, I mean, I it, I think it's interesting. I'm being drawn in by curiosity right now. I know sometimes people complain about monster episodes. So. Well, I, honestly, I would have ended the us recording this if i thought that i could have more fun than this right now (laughs) um so i'm just i'm having a great time yeah so like you know wherever we have to stick the ending we can edit it back i don't care i just want to continue asking this thing some some stuff true um oh uh actually going back to our episode on the difference between sweet wine and dessert wine if you would gabe ask what is the difference between sweet wine and dessert wine I want to ask it this specifically, because now that I know that if we ask it for information where we're kind of leading it into the distinction, it will give us a distinction. I want to see if it'll change the story if I then ask a more general question. Okay, this is actually a good answer. I'm sorry to... I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I think it's going to give us a good answer the first time, because if we ask it something with a leading question that's like... Not something that people typically ask. I think it's going to give us good information. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to give us a less nuanced general answer if we give it a more general question that would actually contradict whatever it's about to tell us. Yeah. All right. So how good is it, though? it's, It's solid. So sweet wine and dessert wine are often used interchangeably, but there is a subtle difference between the two. Sweet wine refers to any wine that has residual sugar left over after fermentation. This residual sugar can come from the grapes themselves or can be added during the winemaking process. Sweet wines can range in style from off-dry to very sweet, and they can be made from a variety of grape varieties. Dessert wine, on the other hand, refers specifically to sweet wines that are intended to be served with dessert. These wines are typically richer and more full-bodied than other sweet wines with higher levels of sugar and alcohol. Solid. Dessert wines can be made from a variety of grape varieties, including muscat, riesling, and late-harvested grapes. They can also be fortified with brandy or other spirits, such as port or sherry. In summary, sweet wine refers to any wine with residual sugar, while dessert wine is a specific type of sweet wine that is intended to be served with dessert. If you joined us for our sweet wines versus dessert wines, you already know. 
this is solid. This is an A plus answer. This is an A plus answer. Yeah. Like maybe it's because it's so uncommon that there's not enough on the internet <laughs> yeah, to yeah. be inaccurate. Yeah. If you would now just say, what is a sweet wine? Sweet wine is a type of wine that contains residual sugar after fermentation. During the winemaking process, yeast convert grape sugar into alcohol, and in dry wines, all of the sugar is consumed by the yeast. However, in sweet wines, some of the sugar is left unfermented, resulting in a wine that is sweet on the palate. That's mostly true. Mm -hmm. Sweet wines can be made from a variety of grape varieties. I don't know why it keeps being yeah, so redundant really with that. Yeah, weird. Um, including Riesling, Muscat, and Chenin Blanc. Some sweet wines are also fortified with brandy or other spirits, such as port or sherry, to increase their alcohol content and sweetness. Sweet wines can range in sweetness level from off-dry to very sweet, and they can be served as a dessert wine or paired with sweet or spicy foods. Some examples of sweet wines include late harvest, ice wine, Sautern, and Tokai. The end, it falls apart a little bit because it is conflating sweet wine with dessert wine. The delineation is entirely lost. Yes. So if you don't know to ask the difference, it will not tell you that difference. Yeah, and for somebody who doesn't know anything about wine going into this, that lack of specificity that would say, hey... Remember when learning about this, that this is not this, and that the distinction is this. Mm -hmm. This program, ChatGPT, will never give you that delineation unless there is extensive focus of that on the internet. Yeah. We still have a job. We still have a job. We still have a job. Well, I, I want to bring back an oldie. An oldie of the podcast. How old? How old? Is this a good memory or a bad memory? I enjoyed this episode. I, well, that's the thing. I've enjoyed every episode. I think this is at least a year at this point. Okay, so I'm probably not going to listen to that episode because <laughs> I, I like myself, but well, I remember it fondly. The question is, Michael, are wine scores reliable? Oh, yeah. yeah. Hey, that, that was a good episode. I enjoyed that episode. I think that episode holds up. Yeah. Oh, we even oh we have a name drop, and it's the same name that we name dropped in our episode. Oh, oh no. because there's information on the internet about uh -huh. the guy. Oh right. boy, oh boy, here we go. Wine scores can be a useful tool for consumers to evaluate and compare wines, but they are not always reliable or objective. Wine scores are typically assigned by wine critics, such as Robert Parker, wine spectator or wine enthusiast. Um, small. Just nitpick already out the gate. I'm sorry, but Wine Spectator and Wine Enthusiast are not wine critics. They're no. associations that employ wine critics. Yeah. What? Anyway, um, who taste and rate wines based on a set of criteria such as aroma, flavor, structure, and complexity. You've never done a wine tasting with Wine Enthusiast? You've uh, just never done that? Every Thursday. Every Thursday. Yeah. They're great, actually. All of Wine Enthusiasts. They always offer to pay. Yes, yes. <laughs> Never take them up on it, though, because you don't know when you're, you know, dealing it, with websites. It's a websites. Faustian bargain, really. Yeah, well, and I just, I don't like dealing, uh, you know, I, I don't like actually letting publications buy me drinks like that, <laughs> you know. We like to maintain our indie cred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Unless While, they want to fund us. <laughs> yeah, true. While wine scores can provide an overall assessment of a wine's quality, they are subjective and can be influenced by the critic's personal preferences, biases, and tasting experiences. I don't hate that. 
Additionally, different critics may have different scoring systems and criteria, which can make it difficult to compare scores across different publications. That is absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, wine scores can also be influenced by external factors, such as the reputation of the winery, the vintage, and the price of the wine. This can create a bias towards certain wines and regions, which may affect the accuracy and reliability of the scores. I'm impressed. In summary, wine scores can be a helpful tool for consumers to evaluate and compare wines. That's literally almost word for word, the first sentence. Mm -hmm. But they should be taken with a grain of salt and used in conjunction with other sources of information, such as tasting notes, producer information, and personal preferences. Okay. I mean, they had to do a restate of the first paragraph because that's what you do in an essay. Right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know, so that's fine. That's fine. And yeah. honestly, I didn't I didn't hate a lot of that, but there's definitely some uh, Mad Lib mistakes happening here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, wine enthusiast, again, is not a <laughs> yeah. is not a person. Yeah. I also find it interesting. And this is truly interesting. This is a, a neutral, neither good nor bad thing that they didn't mention that most of the time that they are numerical. Yeah. I wonder why it didn't do that. We didn't ask it to describe how the ratings were done. That's true. So I think that reliability was the focus here. That Yeah, that that's fair. It's That's yeah. a very computer-programmed way of looking at that's it. What, that's is, how I think. This is the word you used, and this is what we're going to focus on, yeah. That, that's also actually how I communicate, so it's it's fine. Michael is a computer, apparently. I'm not a computer. You, I'm you're just, proving that statement at the beginning of the episode that you are an no, AI. No, no. My program doesn't allow me to reveal myself in that way. <laughs> uh, I just happen to take things literally. I wake up in a pod. Covered in mucus. I am Neo. That's proof that I'm a computer is that I wake up in a wet environment? No, the you being the computer is proof that I'm in the Matrix. Oh. Yeah. Oh, we established everything around you is fake, yeah. mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. yeah. But you should pretend as though it's real so that, you know, you can feel the satisfaction of being a human. Okay, Lacan, calm down. <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is actually, like, pretty much the same well maybe not the same i think we were a bit more negative about wine scores and we also went more into depth in how wine scores might be used as well as their influence on the market itself yeah which this did not but it, didn't, it echoes we, we didn't our episode it. yeah somewhat and i i so obviously i agree with it because i agree with our episode on it yeah i agree with my own opinion very much <laughs> yeah um yeah because there is a lot of inaccuracy that's happening the systems that they use aren't necessarily the best way to determine quality mm -hmm. there's such a thing as chemosensory uh expertise but not everybody has it and certainly not all judges yes and yeah the whole taste preference thing yeah that's why you should find a wine that you like and figure out who makes it. And then you should start trying other wines that they have if you want to develop your taste. Or listen, if you like the profile of wine that Robert Parker likes, you can be pretty much guaranteed to buy any wine with a 92 or above score from him and know that you're going to like it. Like, that's true. I might not agree with the methodology of it, but it, it's accurate in well, that yeah. way. Well, Michael, we are really going on for time here. So why don't you give me one final one more really good question? I have kind of a basic one that I'm I'm interested how it will interpret what I'm looking for. OK, what is the difference between white and red wine? 
All right, so we have a little mini essay again. The main difference between white and red is the color of the grapes used and the winemaking process. White mm. wine is typically made from green or yellowish grapes or from red grapes with the skins removed. That is not true. No. Uh, there are many white grapes that are either gray or pinkish in tone, yeah. you know, Grigio being one of them. But one of the most popular I, white wines that there is. I, I will I will kind of forgive that one because, okay. But, but we're already seeing problems. Yeah. Um, after the grapes are crushed, the juice is separated from the skins and fermented at a cool temperature. Not always true, but in general, sure. Which helps to preserve the fruity and floral aromas of the wine. White wine can be aged in stainless steel tanks or in oak barrels, depending on the style and winemaker's preference. There, there's the key here is winemaker's preference. Red wine, on the other hand, is made from red or black grapes, which are crushed with their skins on. The skins contain pigments that give the wine its color and also provide tannins, which contribute to the wine structure and aging potential. After fermentation, the wine is aged in oak barrels, which can impart flavors of vanilla, spice, and toast. That is not true. I mean, well, for a lot of red wines, it is. But for another huge part of the market, it's also not. Yeah. Red wine and white wine also differ in terms of taste and food pairings. Red wine is typically more full-bodied and tannic. Okay. With flavors of dark fruit, earth, and spice. No. No. We've Uh, gotten into the same problem again. Yeah. It pairs well with hearty dishes like steak, stews, and game meats. I mean, some red wines, sure. Other wines, I dare not. you to pair a Pinot Noir with a with a steak, or or a Gamay, or a, or a Barbera. I love putting jam on top yeah. of my steaks. White wine is generally lighter bodied and more acidic, with flavors of citrus, tropical fruit, and minerality. That, that's a tasting note. Okay. Yeah, okay. It pairs well with seafood, salads, and light pasta dishes. Yeah. Again, some of them yes, some of them no. Yeah. In summary, the main differences between white and red wine are the color of the grapes. White and red wine are the color of the grapes used. Whatever. And the winemaking process, which results in different flavors, aromas, and food pairings. Um... Uh, yeah, we asked a really general question and got a, a very flawed answer. Yeah, this was this was just kind of like bouncing around. I feel like this is how my writing was when I was maybe six. You know what? I want to come back to this, but I want to ask it a more specific question in this Please. vein to see what happens. So no, I love ask, a moment of inspiration. What are we doing? So I'm going to ask, what is the flavor profile of a Burgundian Chardonnay? Oh, yes, please. Let's see what it can do. All right, so Burgundian Chardonnay, and just as a side note, I misspelled Burgundian because I was typing too fast, and it actually did know what I was talking about, so it can correct for spelling mistakes. Yeah, you can do spell check. Yes. Uh, Burgundian Chardonnay, or White Burgundy, is a Chardonnay-based wine that comes from the Burgundy region of France. True. True. The flavor profile of a Burgundian Chardonnay can vary depending on the specific appellation, winemaker, and vintage. True. But there are some general characteristics. Aromas. Burgundian Chardonnay typically has aromas of citrus fruits, such as lemon and grapefruit, along with notes of green apple, pear, and sometimes tropical fruit. There may also be hints of floral and mineral notes, such as acacia, honeysuckle, and wet stones. Flavors. On the palate, Burgundian Chardonnay is often described as medium to full-bodied with flavors of lemon, green apple, and sometimes tropical fruit, such as pineapple or mango. 
The wine may also have a creamy texture with flavors of butter, vanilla, and toast from oak aging. The finish is typically long and crisp with a lingering acidity and mineral notes. Aging Potential High-quality Burgundian Chardonnay has the potential to age for many years, developing more complex flavors and aromas over time. With age, the wine may take on nutty, honeyed, and caramelized flavors, along with an increased minerality. Uh, increased that, minerality, that, that's you say? Odd. Um, in summary, <laughs> Burgundian Chardonnay is a medium to full-bodied white wine with aromas of citrus fruits, green apple, and sometimes tropical fruit, along with hints of floral and mineral notes. On the palate, the wine has flavors of lemon, green apple, and creamy notes of butter, vanilla, and toast. High-quality examples have the potential to age for many years, developing more complex flavors and aromas. I think that is actually pretty good mm-hmm. overall. And I, I think, again, we are really reinforcing that in conjunction with the previous question of just plain red wine versus white wine is you need to give it specifics and this is something i think that someone who doesn't know a lot would ask if they had heard about burgundy and they just wanted to know about it there are buttery notes in the oak is where is is one of the well in in the more southern portions of burgundy they do use like macon uses oak they're yeah it's just imparting butter as a as a thing was it a buttery note or are they trying to talk about texture because buttery that's well, diacetyl. They, they did say creamy texture. So if if they're talking about texture, that's one thing. But butter as a flavor, that's diacetyl. That's caused by malolactic fermentation. Well, and and Macon, you might have that as well. But they didn't mention it. it true. But they didn't I, mention malolactic fermentation even once. True. But I think we, are again, are seeing the marketing because people... Unless we're talking about California Chardonnay, typically don't talk about mallow mm. as much. So the answer is more or less accurate as far as setting an expectation based on the question, but it's not giving you nuance to understand which practices would cause what in, in specific expectations. And I, I know that this is maybe expecting something from a question that we didn't quite ask, which would have been... What do the different regions of Burgundy or how do the different regions of Burgundy express Chardonnay might be a better way to say it. So like, for example, pear and green apple, Cote d'Or, you might find that. You might find them in Chablis because Chablis is part of Burgundy. You're definitely going to find green apple in Chablis, right? And citrus. Mm -hmm. But the tropical fruits probably in some of the better sites in the Cote d'Or, sure. But you're probably going to start getting into that more in the like Macon area. So it, even as a generality within this question, which is much more specific, we still kind of find that you have to then further elaborate to get a really solid definition. Cause I guess the way I would answer this is like Burgundian Chardonnay is typically going to be a higher quality Chardonnay with some orchard fruits for most of the wines in the warmer regions you can or the warmer appellations you can get some tropical notes coming in and in those warmer appellations they also typically will use some malolactic conversion and oak in their wines that's very common and the wines tend to be rather long-lived from burgundy at least from the higher quality producers like that's Mm -hmm. how i would answer the question i like that they gave specific notes but again there's so much variability yeah that is kind of like it's true and it's not 
Yeah, well, and yeah. also it doesn't give the full picture of yeah. what those notes actually mean in the context of the higher quality, which is really one of the But again, things. going back to the red versus wine, or sorry, the red versus white question, we are seeing that same problem of for red wines, automatically they're assuming oak. Yeah. Because that is what most marketing displays for red wines right exactly there's uh, a lack of distinction as to what actually makes the thing the thing yeah so it, it again it, it might help you if you're just trying to get into the study to have some key data points to then research or setting a very general expectation sometimes but it's also going to completely lead you off the rails if this is what you depend on yeah so once again we uh we still have a job. We still have a job. We I still think, have a uh, job. So that being said, we we are at a an hour and 49 minutes of recording time. So again, yeah. we are sorry if this is a bit of a trek to get through, but we think it's fun. So I'm not sorry. Short summary, Michael. What are your final thoughts on chat GPT as a wine exploration tool? I would say if you have no other resource to get into wine and you have no way of figuring out which publications are more accurate or less accurate, or if they're just trying to sell something to you as opposed to educate you, ask as many questions as you want. Do not depend upon this program. Yeah. Use it and then start trying to find people that actually know what they're talking about, preferably on the ground, people who work as winemakers, people who are on the forefront of technologies. Those are the people that I would learn from. Mm -hmm. um, I would recommend uh, the Wine Bible. I think that that's a, a great place to start doing some checks and balances. That actually is probably going to be how you ask questions that make this program as useful as it might be. Mm -hmm. But again, this is not the end-all be-all, and it and might lead you in the absolute wrong direction. And a book has a table of contents where if you don't even know the question to ask to begin with, you can get... The question of, oh, Spain, that sounds interesting. Let me read about Spain. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think I, I pretty much agree with that. And I would add, again, going into the nature of AI itself, at least as it exists today, and I know I've said this already like three times, but it cannot parse this information. Mm -hmm. It's almost self-defeating in a way if you're using this for education, mm -hmm. because you have to be educated to get an educated answer out of this bot. Exactly. And you won't be able to separate what is and is not useful to you. Yes. So that is, for me, the biggest weakness. Yes, we got a couple of really solid answers. We got nitpicky with it, but even just the Burgundian Chardonnay profile, solid, very, very general profile. I, I can't really complain too much about it aside from I wish it would have broken it down from like north to south at least or something regarding the temperature of the region just letting you know that there's maybe some more distinction that should be yes. made. so that would have been nice but that one what was another answer that we really liked what was the a plus answer oh uh the what a is plus a, was sweet is, and dessert yes the sweet and dessert wine but again that was another one where you have to know to ask that question to begin with so that for me is what really seals the deal of chat gpt is not stealing the job of either us or any educator really because this is not an educational tool from this interaction that i've had with it i i would not use this for education no. i would use this for 
fun for if you need to real quick write up some like copy text for a website or something Mm -hmm. and you know exactly what you're looking for it could be good for that you're probably gonna have to edit it a little bit but like it saves time for that stuff like that sure well and i've heard um people who already had data that was like accurate putting it into chat gpt and having it simply phrase it out for them in a way that was useful in the context that they were doing and it and it seemed to work pretty well but at that point you're the one that's supplying the value mm-hmm. it's just supplying a vocabulary set it's it's a codex and that's something that an ai can do pretty easily thank you guys so much for joining us for this we hope that it was useful to you Uh, as we kind of gave some checks and balances to the tools available on the internet. Also, don't buy AI art until they figure out how to make it save the artists. Yeah. Uh, It could be a great tool, but we're not doing that right now. We're stealing. Don't buy NFTs either, please. That's that's Gabe's opinion, and I'm not going to say whether or not I share it, because somebody might one day want to turn one of my pieces of art into uh, an NFT, and I'm okay with that. As long as you're seeing profits from it, I'm okay. No, no, no. As long as I'm seeing money and as long as I'm not being asked to give money because I think it's all a sham. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) There we go. There There it is. is. (laughs) (laughs) But thank you guys so much for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed this, gotten a value out of it. If you do have any questions, comments, concerns, things that weren't very clear to you, please do DM us. Or if there's just an episode, a topic that you would love for us to get into, we would love to hear your feedback. Yes. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about the powers that be. Yes. More than likely. And we're going to be talking about their impact, the way that they have structured the world around us, which we have been born into and must indeed operate in. We are reading the script of The Matrix. I'm not reading anything. This is improv, baby. Okay. No, no, no. I'm saying the next episode is just us reading the script of The Matrix. (laughs) But yeah, join us for then when we're talking about how the wine industry is structured and how that actually impacts people. Yes. And with that, I have been Gabe. I have been Michael. Cheers, everyone. Cheers.